Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Free, open, keep one web. You ain't seen nothing yet. Hey, welcome back to our final episode of season two. These days, the relationship between society and technology is more complicated than ever. It's as easy to imagine current technology leading us to a black mirror dystopian future of cruel AI overlords as it is to a new world order of equality driven by blockchain. My guest today is tech legend Tim O'Reilly, author of WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. In his book, Tim tackles this very question of what our future looks like and how the relationship between society and technology will ultimately drive where we go. If you haven't followed Tim's career, he is the founder of O'Reilly Media, a company that through its books, conferences, sites, and more has shaped a whole generation's education and outlook on technology. Tim has been a pioneer behind everything from the early open source movement, Web 2.0, to Make Magazine and Code for America. Tim starts off by telling me about his deep roots in 1960s San Francisco scene and how his study of the early civilizations influenced his current philosophies on technology. I moved to San Francisco when I was three months old. Uh, so grew up in San Francisco in the 60s. Okay. So you may see some echoes of that uh, in uh, you know my history. You know I was very much around the you know the the summer of love, and I was just a teenager there. And then I was uh, in the city. Yeah, in the wow. city. Went to you know summer of love concerts in Golden Gate Park. You know when I was 13 or <laughs> whatever. So Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead. You know just kind of in you know hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. In Speedway Meadows. So your parents are Irish and immigrated to the United uh, States. That's my mom's English. My English dad was Irish. Irish. Okay. But that definitely had an influence, you know, uh, and, and I, I still remember the time uh, my brothers and I drew straws. Uh, two of us would take mescaline and the other would take notes. <laughs> I, I got the short straw, unfortunately, and I took the notes. But it was, it was just that kind of, you know, it was that kind of time when, when there was... Uh, a lot of idealism, and, and it was very interesting because I uh, got involved with a guy named George Simon, uh, who was trying to develop a language for consciousness. Uh, Is he a psychologist? No, he was actually, he was a toilet paper salesman. Okay. <laughs> it was very funny. He sold janitorial supplies. But he was a, um, he'd been deeply influenced by general semantics and, and the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo. And he kind of put together this really interesting program, which was actually aimed at uh, teenagers. It was, uh, he, he had an explorer post originally. 
I wish my brother jo joined, uh, where he was teaching meditation, and he was teaching basically how to read your internal states of consciousness, and he had this way of describing all. Anyway, he got discovered by Esalen later, and uh, so I got pulled in when I was 18. And for, actually, for our non-familiar with like San Francisco counterculture, Esalen's like sort of a re retreat in the Bay Area, which has a lot of... It's actually down in Big Sur, which is a two or three hours south on the coast. It's actually coming back into prominence, a, a whole bunch of Silicon Valley types of have kind of made it their new home, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's having this sort of renaissance right now, hmm. which is kind of interesting. But what was interesting about all that, he had ended up this, with this theory about how we were developing this global consciousness. And it was funny because, of course, you know, 20, 30 years later, there I was talking about global consciousness, except mediated by technology as opposed to this, you know, purely. Yeah. Uh, but that, in fact you know, how these things happen. And what did your parent? what were your parents doing in well, San Francisco? Well, uh, my dad was a neurologist. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, I uh, actually used to, you know, you know, work in his lab and I uh, was actually a test subject for some of his research. I was in injected with radioactive copper when I was 14. He was a pioneer in, in nuclear medicine. And uh, one of the things that he studied was Wilson's disease, which is a, a genetic disease that involves uh, abnormal retention of copper in the body. And, uh, of course, being a Spider-Man fan, how could I not want to be injected with radioactive <laughs> copper? It didn't give me superpowers, but we had a great time. But if I ever get liver cancer, uh, we'll, we'll probably uh, get to attribute it to uh, the fact that copper tends to be uh, you know, concentrated in the liver before it's excreted. So <laughs> It could be the mescaline, though, too. <laughs> no, I never took it, actually. Okay. <laughs> Not only have you sort of now associated with Big Thinker and somebody who's really shaped technology in the sector in California, did you dream about writing computer technical manuals when you were 15? No, not at no. all. Uh, I actually was, uh, I, I studied classics in college, Greek and Latin, uh, because I was really interested in uh, the transition uh, uh, that really happened in around that time in how we thought about ourselves. There's a famous book by a guy named Bruno Schnell called uh, The Discovery of the Mind. And if you look at the difference in how Homer describes how thought happens, you know, sort of Athena put this idea into the thumos, the liver of Odysseus, and then our modern conception of ourselves. Uh, and, and, you know, how different it was by the time of Socrates three or four hundred years later. So there's this huge transition in sort of human self-awareness. And my friend George had always th thought that, yeah, we were going to go through this similar transition into this global consciousness. And so it was very funny. I, I was really focused on that. And it was really happenstance that led me to technology. Uh, I had uh, graduated from college with a degree in classics. I did a, uh, I had a small grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to translate Greek wisdom stories, uh, you know, kind of like you, you read Zen stories or Sufi stories. And I was doing these stories about Greek philosophers. And then I got asked to write a book about Frank Herbert, the science fiction writer, by a friend who'd been asked to put together a series of monographs. He knew I liked science fiction. So I kind of came to think of myself as a writer. And then I had a friend who were teaching this consciousness work to who uh, got asked to write a computer manual. And he was a programmer. He didn't know how to write. And I said, well, I'll help you out. And uh, one thing led to another. And before long, I was uh, deep into computers. But it didn't happen for me till I was 24. I was not one of these kids who was right. in computers when I was 14. Right. And so what's interesting, though, is because if you, I mean, on some level, we'll talk about the book. You released this book last October uh, called WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. And a lot of it really is contemplating 
a lot of the issues you just just brought up just That's now, right. right? It's a lot of like, who are we as people, and are we part of uh, a networked computer system already, and are we aware that we're mm-hmm. part of that? What what drove you to write to write this book, and, and tell me a bit about it? Well, it's been a long journey for me thinking about our relationship with technology. You know, I was very early, uh, you know, involved with the internet and thinking about what it meant. Uh, you know, wh- wh- when I was originally you know, interested, for example, in open source software, there were a lot of people who were focused very much on Linux. And while I was impressed with Linux, I was just blown away by the internet, which I'd been, you know, part of since uh, early 80s. This was the real driver for me of, of open source software, was just this global collaboration uh, that was enabled by the internet. It wasn't just, uh, you know, sure, there was a lot of stuff when we were sending Unix tapes around in the, you know, in the 80s, but then all of a sudden, wow, you could have all these people who were just collaborating over the net. And so I was really fascinated by internet-enabled collaboration. And then as I watched it over the, the years, you could see it getting faster and faster until, we're, you know, in today's world, you know, effectively things flash around the world via Twitter, uh, via Facebook, uh, we now start to see these algorithmic systems that are influencing how we think. Uh, you know, we really are part of the machine. And somewhere along the line, I, I started to have this notion. Well, first of all, I was very focused on this idea that, that um, you know, when I, when I sort of talked about Web 2.0 back in the 2004, 2005, the companies that survived the dot-com bust were all companies that harnessed collective intelligence. Right. You know, so Google, uh, you know, taking all the links, taking all the clicks, uh, turning it into intelligence. You know, Amazon, I would compare to, you know, like by the time they were still just a bookstore, uh, but they were so much more intelligent about harnessing user reviews and ratings to show you what they thought were the most popular things as opposed to what some publisher wanted to pay to put in front of you. You know, so they, they were playing the new rules, you know, Wikipedia, Flickr. So these were all collective intelligence applications. And then along came the real-time web, uh, you know, with Twitter. And you guys probably even remember, you know, things like Technorati. And they were like, wow, we're following the blogosphere. Of course, and Google, yeah. And then Google had to catch up. And, of course, now, you know, Google, the Google crawl is close to instantaneous. And then we got into so- the social media world. And you start to see that these applications are these synthetic applications of human and machine. And then, of course, as I continued to follow that path, I said, well, even things like self-driving cars. You know, everybody thinks, wow, it's this triumph of AI. But you train these things by having human drivers uh, driving Google Street View vehicles originally, you know, taking detailed, building super detailed maps. And so, in fact, we're creating the memories that a self-driving car uses to train on. Right. And, of course, you know, this turns out to be, as we get into the world of AI, this, you know, real symbiosis. And so human-machine symbiosis really became a central feature of my thinking uh, just through watching what was happening. So I want to I wanna come back in a second to the, just the, the whole discussion around algorithms and algorithm bias. And mm-hmm. you brought up the 60s, so I do want to ask you whether we are machines or not. So we'll talk about that in a second. But mm-hmm. before, um, what's the WTF economy? Well... I started. That's something uh, you bring up in the book. It's what yeah, the title of the yeah. book is like. How do you see that economy? What does that What does that mean? Well, uh, first of all, WTF is a term that's wonderfully ambiguous because, first of all, yeah, it means what the f, you yeah. know. But people say that in different ways. You know, you can say WTF with disgust or with amazement. Right. 
And it seemed to me that a lot of what's going on today has that dual quality of wow and oh shit. Right. So I was trying to capture that fact that, you know, A, you can have things that start with wow and end up in oh shit. You can have things that end up, start with oh shit and end up in wow. <laughs> and, uh, but really just to use that as a way of, of identifying a set of technologies that are world-changing. It's very easy to forget that things we now take for granted were once WTF technologies. Like? Uh, well, uh, there's an image that's very powerful for me, and I've never been able to track it down because it was one of these evanescent things at an airport, Sydney Airport. They had a giant photo mural, probably 100 feet long, of thousands of people staring at the sky in astonishment. And it was the first airplane coming to Australia. Oh, right, yeah. You know, and you go, oh, my God, yeah. You know, and you think about Lindbergh or Amelia Earhart. I mean, airplanes were an incredible WTF technology. And now you think, oh, my God, you know, getting on an airplane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, you got to put your stuff in a bag, you know, and, you know. I mean, a lot of people talk these days about, like, how things are, you know, everything's going faster than it ever was before. Technology changing the world. There's definitely an argument to be made that, you know, the change from uh, the world, the, change in the world before airplanes to after airplanes is maybe, oh, is maybe more absolutely. significant than oh, what we're going through. You know, absolutely. You know, airplanes, antibiotics, you know, just e even just the, the shift from an economy dominated by the exchange of real goods to a financialized economy, which yeah. is something I talk about uh, in the, uh, the book quite a bit. You know, there are a bunch of people who make a whole lot of money not from actually giving anything back and forth in the sort of traditional Adam Smith economy, sure. but just by getting people to bet on some idea, you know? Yeah. And, and of course, this was what was happening in Wall Street. I think it happens a lot more in Silicon Valley. And of course, the ICO, ICO craze and the, and the cryptocurrency, you know, is, is pure speculation on speculation. Yeah. And, and, and so we have an economy in which, uh, you know, we've actually, you know, supplied a lot of our basic needs. And the way you get wealthy is actually not by supplying basic needs anymore. And we have to start rethinking what are the fundamental drivers of the economy? Are they different? And so the WTF economy is, oh my, oh my God, we don't actually know how this thing works. There's all this amazing stuff that's changing the world. And it could change it for the worse. It could change it for the better. And that's why the, the ultimate point of the book is it's up to us. Right. This actually has a little backstory to it. I wanted to use the title WTF for a talk I gave for the White House, and I had to get it past White House. This, this White House or the previous? Uh, previous, previous, previous White, White House, House yeah. the Obama White House. It yeah. was a, they, they did a, a conference called Frontiers, which was sort of about AI and technology, and they wanted, I was sort of the warm-up act for President Obama, and I said I wanted to do this talk called WTF, and they were like, WTF. <laughs> no, we can't get that through White House right, comms. I right. said, but of course, it stands for what's the future. Right. <laughs> and so that's where the uh, WTF, what's the future uh, came. The why it's up to us actually came from my wife, Jen Palka, who runs uh, Code for America and was actually the deputy CTO at the White House, started uh, the United States Digital Service. Um, you know, she's really focused on how do we use technology to make government work better. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about that. I, yeah. The WTF thing, though. So basically, it's you have this 
acronym, which is, it could be amazing, it could be awful. It definitely feels like we've just transitioned from a, a period of time where it, it felt more on the, like, the optimistic element of WTF. Yeah. And it's like, not just because of the political climate, but the political climate potentially being a little bit of a reflection of some of the issues that have been That's ongoing right. in technology for That's a really right. long time, actually. That's right. It feels like we're in the, oh, shit, That's moment, right. right? Yeah. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I would say so. But the, the ultimate point of the book is that which one of those things we get is up to us. It really is. Uh, the, the choices we make shape the future. And a lot of people are like, well, tell us what the future is going to be. And I go, no, it's already happening. And we are making choices all of the time uh, that shape that future. We can make better choices. And I think there's a lot of kind of sense of inevitability in our sense of history, you know, the, the, the such and such will happen. Yeah. You know, you'll read books about the future and they're like, this will happen, this will happen. I go, no, all kinds of possibilities uh, are, are out there. You know, we could have a global plague. Uh, we could see the collapse of our civilization. We could see, uh, you know, a world of plenty where people don't have jobs anymore, but they're all very happy. Uh, we could see a world where some people are very rich and everybody else is, is very poor, you know, like what's happening right now in Venezuela. All of these are possible futures. Now, of course, having read and written about Dune, if you ever uh, remember uh, Paul Atreides, uh, the, the main character, you, know, you can see the future. And he's, what do I do? You know, and, and, and the answer is you, you make choices. Right. Uh, you know, Who do you think us is, though? Well, I think it's all of us collectively. Is uh, it? I mean, is it Silicon Valley? Is it no, just like, no. like individual citizens, just every single person? Yeah, I, I think what we collectively believe shapes the choices that, that we make. There's a wonderful passage in Russ Roberts' book, uh, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, which is, is interesting because it's not actually about uh, the wealth of nations, Adam Smith's great book of economics, but about his other book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. But Russ kind of pulls it together, and it's, but it's basically about uh, what shapes human behavior is our desire, is how we want to be seen by other people and, and the social norms. And social norms change, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, an example, Kara Swisher asked me about this when we did an interview about this book. She was like, who is this us you're talking about, you know? And I said, well, you know, think about this for a minute. Everybody used to believe in the divine right of kings. And we had this revolution here in America now approaching 250 years ago uh, where we decided we weren't going to buy that anymore. And... I was fascinated one time when I read, and I've since read it many times, so it appears to be from multiple sources, that George III, King George III of England, expected that George Washington would be crowned king in America after you know, they you know, acceded to the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And was astonished that, he, that Washington went back to his farm. Right. Because everybody assumed that, well, you have a king. And we changed the rules. We right. rewrote the rules fairly profoundly. And right now, we have this assumption about the way the economy works, which is an economy of scarcity where uh, we need to produce more, we need to consume more, we need to keep this engine of growth going. And we could have a different economy. And in fact, you know, what I see is it's already happening in, in various profound ways. And we're seeing you know, people trying to hold on to the old economy mm -hmm. 
as there is this new economy being born, and when I say new economy, I'm not talking just about like when, when it was like, wow, we have this digital economy, and isn't that cool? But things really getting broken, and then new, new, new institutions becoming possible. Uh, we, just a, a really good example of this, and it's something I'm thinking a lot about since the book, is that uh, we've, for a long time, had markets that were dominated by price signaling as the primary way of coordination of this sort of so-called invisible hand. Sure. But think for a minute about sort of Google's pay-per-click advertising. They actually bring to bear all kinds of other data. And, and in fact, their innovation was to override price as the primary signal. They said, oh, actually, we do better not by selling to the highest bidder, but by being smarter about how likely people are to click. Yep. And if you think about that, that design of a different allocation of who gets what and why is actually at the heart of a lot of internet programs. Uh, you know, think about how Uber is trying to, and Lyft are trying to bring more supply into the marketplace. It's not price is their primary signal, but there, there's a whole lot of other things that they're, they're trying to play with. And I think as we get more sophisticated with AI, there are going to be more ways to make collaboration and, and coordination at massive scale that will lead to fundamentally different social structures. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, the reason I ask about who the us is, and I think probably why other people ask, and it's such a big thing, is it seems like there's there's people who are leaders in our society and in technology who have not maybe on purpose, but have invariably created and profited from a lot of these things, a lot of these algorithms that have provided a lot of great things, but also back to what I, my point earlier that have sort of brought us into this moment where it feels like, oh shit. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like those people are standing up and trying to like fix it and take responsibility for it. It seems like they're trying to say it's not their fault. And so I, I think that... Really? I, I don't, I don't yeah, see I mean, that. I, well, for instance, Twitter, for instance, they were asked to provide data and answers to the government around this Russia thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yesterday. They're late. They didn't do it on time. Um, you could go back to Mark Zuckerberg. And it's not to like blame Mark Zuckerberg for everything at all. It's just to say that after the election, he said, this has nothing to do with us. A month later, he said, well, it might have something to do. You know, and eventually it changed. Right. And it feels like there's this constant desire to avoid the responsibility. And so I don't think it's that people don't want it to be up to them. I think we all want it to be up to, them, no, to us. Uh, uh, but I think we want to see our government, our leaders, the people who are leading these tech, yeah. tech companies taking, taking the responsibility by the hand and telling us what to do. I guess I would say two or three things about that. One is it takes time for people to wake up. Yeah. There's a great line. I forget who said it. His name is escaping me at the moment. But uh, uh, Jen, my wife, reported this to me. It was a guy who gave a, a talk at the Obama Foundation Summit. And he said, his line was, is there room for the waking among the woke? <laughs> and, and it's a great line because we're so intemperate. You know, yeah. once we have this idea that, you know, things ought to change, we're outraged that people Hasn't changed yet. Why hasn't not? Hasn't changed yet. Right. And I look at, you know, com compare the response of Facebook uh, to the fake news crisis to the response of tobacco companies, they are dealing with it. Yeah. They are working very hard to come to grips with it, asking questions. And sure, yeah, they, they go, oh my gosh, we have this business model uh, that may be having some untoward effects on our society. 
I look at them and they're really struggling with it. Yeah. A, a, you know, that's a hard, hard problem. Can they try to, you know, find a way to to still exist and to, to be what they thought they were? Yeah. I, I, I look at that and I go, you know, Silicon Valley is stepping up in a big way relative to, you know, our traditional yeah. sort of corporate you know, response to malfeasance. Yeah, I mean, I take that point for sure. I think part of the thing is, is that we, you, the people listening to this podcast, you know, people in this industry, we've thought these people were, you know, it's like we never thought of them as tobacco companies. We thought of Mark Zuckerberg and Biz Stone and these people as people who shared our values and were always going to be I championing. Can't... I think, and I think it's fair to say that they still are. And I think your point about yeah. like, is there room for the yeah. woke among the awakened? The, uh, but yeah. it's it's the like an impatience. We want to see them like, out there, yeah. and you know, we want to see them yeah. saying, "Holy shit, we gotta we gotta get our shit together." The thing that I guess I would say with all of this is, we are trying to come to grips with profoundly hard problems. Yeah, and you know, if you have a sense of history you realize that these transitions take a long time. And I don't think that, and, and they happen stepwise. And in the book, I try to tell you know, some uh, stories of how technology transitions happen and, and why we, you know, they're almost like games of leapfrog. You know, I, I tell, for example, the story of how we got to Uber and Lyft which are still not completely mature. Yeah. But you kind of think the initial connected taxi cab was put a screen in the back and show ads. You know? a, lot, a lot of late night television being watched in New York City on those taxi cabs. That, that, that's right. And that was clearly just like, that's the old model. You try to, you, it's like, oh my God, you have an internet connection and that's all you can think to do with it because yeah. that's what you do with the internet. And then uh, you have you know, people who go, oh wait, we actually could use it as a hail taxi hailing mechanism. And you have companies like Taxi Magic that try to work with the existing industry, but it doesn't quite fit with the existing industry. You know, then you kind of, and, and you know, I have to say, Sunil Paul actually foresaw a whole lot of what was going to happen. He actually filed a patent in 2000, you know, like years before any of this happened, that was all the possibilities of GPS and, and, and ride hailing and fractional ownership and uh, was actually probably too broad, which goes to the point that actually making stuff and executing is a key part of the entrepreneurial yeah, uh, for sure. you yeah. know, uh, activity, not actually just thinking about it. You know, when Uber started, it was just black cars. It was summoned by text message. Uh, Lyft brought in, actually, it was actually Sunil with Sidecar, who, and then Lyft following very, very fast, that brought in the, the uh, crowdsourced drivers, which Uber was resistant to for yeah. a long time. And then all these different, you know, because different people get different pieces of the puzzle and they put them down and, and everybody goes, oh, that one works. And then you start assembling it. The future gets assembled step by step as each person makes another discovery. And so we're in this collaborative discovery of the future, this collaborative creation of the future. And that's true also of the social structures that we need to build. And the, the, the fact is that great changes in social structure usually come through a crisis. You know, think about the New Deal. The world was in a pretty sorry state. Sure. And so actually, I think we were going to get to a very different economy. Uh, because of the political crisis today or some no, future crisis? Not another one. Because of climate change. Yeah. I think that basically the biggest driver of, I mean, demographics also, uh, a huge change. But... 
you know, we are entering a period of great instability. And if you look at history, you see that many civilizations have fallen as a result of climate change, which undermine. And so we, we have a challenge that will either kill our civilization or will force it to, to change and grow up in a very different way. And I think we have the ability to rise to the challenge. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk a little bit about some of the algorithm stuff because I think it's really yeah. interesting. I'd love your perspective on it. Uh, you know, you referenced some of the Web 2.0 stuff. You're known for coining yeah, yeah. Uh, Web 2.0. You know, some of the stuff that was going on there, which was was wonderful, it was also really visible to the user. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't complicated to understand how Flickr tags worked or why my links on Delicious got shared with somebody. It was all very traceable and mm -hmm. trackable to the user, and that's evolved. And but but Google you know, was not visible in that's that true. same way. Yeah, but that's true. I think the big change is that what we really learned is that you know increasingly the world is shaped by these vast algorithmic big data or increasingly AI systems. Yeah. Uh, and this is true now. Yeah, now. Yeah. You know, so what we see when we you know, we ask Google or for that matter Siri or uh, you know, any of these systems what's true, there's some algorithm that's calculating that. Yeah. And that that algorithm could be based on collective intelligence. And I think that, you know, Google was originally very, very good at that. I think, though, increasingly it can be biased by, you know, economic interests. You know, well, let's show people stuff that's going to have more ads associated with it. And I think Google has, tries to be very scrupulous about that. Yeah. But then along comes, uh, you know, I, I think Facebook had a very different model. You know, Google's model was you get what you need, and we know that because you go away and don't come back. Right. right? If you go back to the search page seven times, and you still haven't found what you're looking for. That's right. You know, so yeah. they, they, you know, there's this sort of very, they just found one of these sweet spots where doing the right thing was also the profitable thing. Right. The, um, in the case of Facebook, they thought, I think they had every reason to think that they were doing a really good thing, which is show people more of what they want. You know, people are clearly wanting this. So I don't fault them at all for that. First of all, the system gets gamed. This happened to Google too. I mean, oh, Google it's still happening. Yeah, it yeah. happens all the time. And Google, you know, search quality became one of their major activities. You read their 10K. You know, they talk about you know that still as one of the fundamental risk factors of their business. Yeah. Now, I mean, now you have these things happening on YouTube, for instance, where 
you'll have some video posted by like an mm -hmm. organization like GLAD, right, which is right. an organization that tries to defend uh, LGBTQ in the right. media. They'll post some video, and you'll have all these anti-LGBTQ people go there and thumbs down the video. Well, and, or bots for that matter. Or exactly. so actually, and yeah. they're essentially, not only are they trying to get it taken down, they're trying to influence the, the yeah, algorithms to absolutely. think that any video that talks about this is bad. Yeah. And so, so yeah, everybody's getting well, gamed uh, well, on some level, purposely and non-purposely. And yeah. our financial markets are just like yeah. that as well. Yeah. But the thing I focus most on in the book is not the gaming, although I think that's an important part, but the way that the fundamental you know, objective function or fitness function, whatever you want to call it, of the algorithm can be wrong. Uh, you know, so, you know, it turns out that engagement, which I can use as a, you know, that's not how Facebook describes it, but that is sure. kind of what they, Clicking they're, 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 on going, they're going looking for, at them. you know, has these untoward effects. And what I really wanted to do in the book by talking about, there's four sections to the book. The first section is called how to think about the future. And it's really just how to see the future in the present. The second part is all about the rise of what you can call platform capitalism and some of how that works and trying to unpack how, how the platforms of today work for people who don't understand them. The third part is, is about the role of algorithms in our society. And I start by using Google and Google search quality as uh, kind of a, a way of teaching how these systems work. And then I look at Facebook and fake news as an example of how they can go wrong. But then I try to get to the one that everybody takes for granted, which is our financial system, uh, you know, and go, this also has a fitness function. And it is the master algorithm of our society. And just as you can see that Facebook needs to fix some things about what they're doing, can we see that we need to fix some things about our financial sure, system? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and our economy. And then, and then the, uh, the fourth part of the book is that it's up to us part where it's really just trying to look at some of the big changes that we need to be do making. You, I think you make a like, point too, you differentiate, or how do you, do, I guess my question would be, I think there's a, there's this sort of activity in the financial markets of people who invest in something for 10 minutes or an hour or a day, or essentially buying a lottery ticket on something they think will go up or go down. And I think you make the point that that doesn't seem like a valuable contribution to an economy. That, that's right. There's, there's a huge amount of, of, completely useless activity. Yeah. And, and again, I shouldn't, you know, people who are in the financial system will say, oh, well, we're making the, mar the, the, you know, capital allocation more efficient. But I think one of the things that we really need to look at is that capital is not the problem in today's society. We're awash in capital. Right. Uh, you know, getting people to focus on the right problems is the issue. Capital is often keeping us from focusing on the right problems. Uh, you know, so to just look at the, you know, is capital really helping with climate change? You know, some people have leveraged that, like Elon, have leveraged that to, um, you know, capital markets to, to, to deal with that. But for the most part, uh, you know, we see, you know, capital basically trying to say consume more, uh, waste more, uh, use more yeah. uh, in, in a world where that's actually not the right objective function for our economy. Right. And uh, it's not making us happier. Uh, and, and, you know, how do we tease that apart and go, yeah, we actually want our economy to become more productive. We want the fruits of that productivity to be distributed equitably so that there's enough to go around. You know, if you look at what rich people do and the way they enjoy life, what if everybody were richer? Yeah. We have this virtuous circle in our economy. Whereas if you basically have a very unequal economy, some people 
get to enjoy the fruits of that productivity and everybody else is struggling to get by. That's not actually a world I want to live in. Yeah. And so we have to figure out, okay, well, you know, there's this idea somehow, you know, which kind of the free market fundamentalists will kind of assume, well, if you, if you muck with the market, you get it wrong. Right. And actually one of the big lessons of technology is that isn't true. You know, and I mentioned a book in, uh, in here, and I love the title of it as much as the book itself. It's called Who Gets What and Why? And it's by an economist named Alvin E. Roth. And he got a Nobel Prize for the redesign of marketplaces. And he basically originally uh, kidney-matching marketplaces where, you know, you know how is it? Because it used to be if you wanted to get a kidney transplant, you had to have a simultaneous donor. Just and, happenstance, right? Well, or they would you try to match them right. up. But you whoever's have a simultaneous, with, yeah, whoever's closest, but, you know, and, and you couldn't often do it. But if you could increase trust in that marketplace, you could say, I'll give you a kidney today because I am the right blood type. You know, my loved one, my wife, my, my husband, my daughter needs a kidney. Uh, you know, if you will guarantee that I will get a kidney from a donor that matches... My my right. my loved one. I'll give you mine now for a future kidney. Sure. But you could. But you're not going to do that, you know. And he figured out a way to redesign the the, the pairing so you get a lot more kidneys going. Right. Yeah. And he also did the same thing for things like college admissions and law clerks. He just really understood that you can design marketplaces so that they're better. And guess what? That's also what Google did with the ad auction. Yeah. You know, they redesigned the marketplace. And I think we're entering a world in which. We can actually make interventions so that the economy works better for everyone. And everybody kind of just looks back and say, well, the old ways of doing interventions didn't work, so intervention doesn't work. Right. You know, that's a little bit like saying, well, bloodletting didn't work, so <laughs> don't, let's don't not do any, don't do any medicine. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the, the challenge there is something you and I believe your wife are working on, which is that some of the people we look to and institutions we look to to make some of these changes and help regulate them and tax them and make changes have just seemed really unable to do so for a really long time. And I, I think, it, tell me if I'm wrong, I think at Code for America, part of the thing you're working on is trying to improve just the general user experience of how we interact with all of these yeah. institutions and make it easier for them. And I also want to give them a bit of credit in saying, their job has gotten a lot more complicated. I mean, if, if people who are really into technology can't necessarily figure out exactly how mm-hmm. to manage these algorithms, it's probably yeah. unlikely that a senator from Nebraska is going to know enough to make a really great decision and convince everybody else about it. Yeah, I, I think in general, uh, any kind of transformation is hard. Uh, corporate transformation, you look at big companies, corporate transformation is incredibly difficult and it's it's on the radar of every company. And here we are now, you know, 30 years into the internet revolution. And, and finally, you know, big companies that were pre-internet are, are starting to really get it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, government tends to be even slower. Uh, and we kind of want it to be slower in some ways. Uh, but it, I think there's big, you know, despite what's happening in politics, there's big steps uh, where government is starting to learn from technology. And, and it's not just applying technology. A lot of what we work on at Code for America is really applying the best practices, user research, uh, design thinking. It's really understanding your users and what you're trying to accomplish and watching your users and noticing what goes wrong. Uh, Jen calls the Code for America strategy apps to ops. We build uh, applications, not to replace the government applications, but to instrument 
the government services so we can say and then work with our government partners and say, oh, you know, you're losing, you know, 20 percent of your applicants at this point because of this bad process right. that we have uncovered. Fix that. And, and those kinds of things are really starting to happen. And, and certainly some countries around the world, you think about Estonia, I was just hearing about some great work that's happening in New South Wales and Australia. Uh, where they're really starting to think of how do we make government work as well as yeah. the best user experience. And I think we're making real progress there. I do think that one of the things that will happen there is that will help to restore trust in government because that is is really, really important. Uh, we forget how important the player, uh, the government is in our economy, even in Silicon Valley. There's a wonderful book that every entrepreneur should read it's called The Entrepreneurial State by Mariana Mazzucato. And, you know, she looks, for example, at the 30 key innovations that were funded by the government that made the iPhone possible. You know, it's not just, right. you know, it's yeah. just... It didn't just happen. Yeah, it didn't just happen. And we need to, there is market failure. Uh, you know, we, we want both sides to be vibrant. Next 10 years, what are the, what are the things that are sort of burgeoning now, the seeds that you're seeing that you think, maybe from a contrarian perspective that'll be bigger than people anticipate today? Well, I think first off, I, I think we're getting to the end of the current internet boom. I think the next wave of innovation is going to surprise us in, you know, well, first of all, I mean, I, I guess I would say that the, 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 the thing that is happening is that the internet and everything it uh, stands for is coming to the rest of the world, not just to, to media and to digital things. You know, so you think about self-driving cars and, and uh, you know, on-demand services and Amazon same-day delivery are kind of teaching us yeah. is that, that so logistics uh, in some sense, that is the, the movement of stuff, not just of movement of atoms, not just of bits, is becoming increasingly algorithmic. And, and our, in our society, people, how people are, are, you know, how work is coordinated and not just, again, how digital stuff is moved around. So that is really happening. And, and I think it's going to uh, lead to some very profound changes in the structure of our economy and which companies you know, win and lose. Uh, the other thing, though, I think that's really just in terms of what are the WTF technologies of today, uh, I think we're going to see a huge amount happening in uh, what uh, Brian Johnson calls neurotech. Uh, not neuroscience, but neurotech. Uh, you know, where neuroscience and technology are, are paired. So I'm heading from here over to Control Labs uh, here in, in New York where they're basically building really effective brain-machine interfaces by, hmm. you know, using AI to read fine muscle signals uh, so that you can control devices without moving. Right. You know, without visibly moving. And, uh, you know, th there's so much that's happening in, in that front where technology infusing the real world is going gonna, is gonna to happen. I think there's also just amazing stuff in biotech, and, and there's, there's going to be some new revolutions there, and, and really necessary revolutions because we're entering this world where climate change is becoming more and more apparent as a, as a, a, a driver of, of, uh, of economics. The other thing I want to say, though, is that the one thing that is constant is that we need to increase our ability to learn and to learn on demand. And that's, of course, what my company does. We're, a, we're fundamentally a learning company. And we've evolved. You know, it used to be that you know, people in our field learn by going and finding the latest O'Reilly book. Uh, and you know, we now have books, conferences, online learning. 
uh, you know, Safari, our online learning platform, is really the heart of our business today. But you think about YouTube, for example. There's something like, I think it's 50 million uh, how-to videos viewed. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, probably know, the every, most... Every day. And yeah, it's one of the most on, common things anybody's ever interacted that's right. with on YouTube. That's right. And, and, you know, just kids are growing up with this idea that they can learn on demand. Yeah. And I have a chapter in the book where I talk about that future of learning. And it's so interesting because it's when learning changes that our society changes, actually. And this is a wonderful um, quote from Bob Putnam, the author of Bowling Alone and numerous other books, political scientist and sociologist. Yeah, uh, he, he said once in a meeting I was at, the great advances in our society have all come when we have invested in other people's children. And in some sense, uh, you know, the Internet is this great investment in the world's children because there is all this learning available to anyone who wants it. And we're going to see profound changes as anyone who wants it uh, can learn what they need increasingly through the Internet. Tim O'Reilly, the book is WTF. What's the future and why it's up to us? Thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been a really great conversation. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much to Tim for talking with us. Be sure to check out his book, WTF, What's the Future and Why It's Up to Us. Our producer is Sebastian Aday. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is your shiny new Unbox smartphone. That wraps up season two of the Webby Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for all your support. We're going to be taking a short hiatus, but we'll be back in the spring with more awesome stories of the internet. If there's someone you'd like to hear us interview next season, shoot me a message on Twitter at DMDLikes or at the Webby Awards. See you in the spring. Thanks. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.